the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really does work. Thanks for being part of the show. And uh, for no particular reason, um, I have to tell you about the, uh, the sand lance. This is the most unusual fish. Uh, how did I come become aware of it? Uh, because my absolute favorite fish is the salmon. Now, it's my favorite fish uh, from two points of view. One is that uh, it is the fish I most enjoy eating over any other fish. I really do. And um, the second reason is because I remain constantly... Obsessed is not too strong a word. Fascinating. Fascinated and astounded. Yeah, I'll stick with obsessed. Um, about the, the life cycle of this extraordinary fish, which seems to move comfortably between fresh water and salt water, starts off its life in fresh water, lives most of its life in salt water, and then in ways we simply do not understand. Oh, I know all the theories. I Believe me, I've read it all up. But we do not know how the salmon, the individual salmon, finds its way back to a particular freshwater source. Uh, by all accounts, the one in which it was originally spawned years beforehand. And it fights its way upstream. And this I've actually seen. Um, in the, in the uh, the locks that join Lake Union to Puget Sound in Seattle, uh, there's a fish ladder with glass windows, and one of the favorite places for us to go with our children was to watch these salmon fighting their way upstream up these ladders with artificial waterfalls. And with that frantic swimming motions, the salmon would literally swim their way vertically <laughs> up the waterfall. It's, I, it, as I hear myself describing it, I think to myself that uh, some of you will say, oh, come on. But <laughs> really, it's true. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. But <clears throat> now, sometimes when you catch a salmon, uh, you find that it's sort of lower lip and the bottom of its mouth area is abraded from sand, which seems to suggest that um, it was fishing, it was, it was hunting for food right along the bottom, and it was rubbing its, uh, its, the, the bottom of its mouth against the, the bottom of the ocean. And I was puzzled, you know, perplexed. Why? What's going on there? And uh, uh, to my astonishment, it turns out that... The salmon's favorite dish is the sea lance. 
Now, the, the sea lance is an unusual fish. It looks eel-like, but it's not an eel at all. It actually is a fish. And uh, it, uh, it's about 10 inches long, and it's silvery and, and thin, but, and with sort of disproportionately big eyes, it looks like. But it lives right down, and it survives by burrowing into the sand, and then uh, every now and then venturing out. But uh, salmon know exactly where to go hunting for uh, sea lances. Sometimes I think they're the same fish that are sometimes called needlefish, by the way. I, I could be wrong on that, but I believe that to be the case. And um, the, uh, the, the one of the fascinating things about the sea lance is that they can and do burrow their way into the sand near the beach at high tide, and then the, the tide goes out, and for like four, five hours... There's no water there, and the sea lances survive out of the water, buried in the sand. Apparently, they, they sort of their metabolism switch into low gear, and they just hang out there, burrowed into the sand, until the tide returns and covers them with water, and then they swim away. Fascinating. Look, I, I have no idea. Why am I telling you all this? Just because I'm blown away by it and intrigued by it, and it's just been fascinating me. But uh, it actually has very little to do with the uh, the topic under discussion. What you may not be aware, I don't think I mentioned it, is that last week's show, which was about how familiarity breeds contempt, and I said, look, if familiarity breeds contempt, and this is one of those expressions that I think most of us hear, and say, yeah, you know what, that, that's, that's true. Yeah, familiarity does breed, you know, the more, the more familiar you are with somebody, the less in awe of them you are. And, uh, and I asked the question of, uh, about marriage, which is that since marriage creates uh, the, the greatest familiarity possible between two people, how can marriage possibly survive? And the answer is that for many people, it simply does not. And uh, something that I want to clarify is that when um, a man feels that he has um, reached that stage where his wife views him with contempt, with disdain, then no matter how beautiful she is, he simply is not attracted to her. That simply doesn't work. And uh, this is one of the reasons. I, I don't know if any of you have been puzzled, but I've been asked this question many times. Uh, going back, actually, to 1995, uh, I was living... Uh, no, actually, I wasn't at the time. But um, uh, in 1995, the actor, the British actor Hugh Grant, was arrested um, whilst in the company of a woman called uh, Marie uh, Thompson. Um, and her, 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 her street name was Divine Brown. But uh, at any rate, she was practicing prostitution in Hollywood, California, and Hugh Grant was arrested uh, with her. Um, you know, he, uh, he had a... There was a minor, there was a minor legal uh, issue, but it, it didn't much impact his career, I don't think. As for Miss Thompson, 
she was um, not a nobody at all. She actually parlayed her encounter with Hugh Grant um, into a couple of million dollars, one or two million dollars of uh, money that she, she managed to make from making herself available to newspapers and magazines. And, uh, and she didn't fritter it away. She invested it. She bought a, a home. She put her children through private school. Really quite, quite an interesting woman. And uh, as far as I know, still, still doing just fine. Anyways, uh, why on earth? Did Hugh Grant go to a prostitute on the streets of Hollywood? Surely Hugh Grant um, could have appeared at, at almost any one of dozens of parties in Hollywood or Beverly Hills and been welcomed as a guest. Um, well, you've got to remember, Hugh Grant this time is married to one of the most beautiful women, Elizabeth Hurley. Now, 1995 is a long time ago. If you take a look at Elizabeth Hurley today, she is still a very, very good-looking woman. So you can just imagine. Anyway, Hugh Grant married to Elizabeth Hurley. Why on earth does he uh, spend uh, $60 on a, uh, a low-end prostitute in Hollywood? And although no one knows what's going on in anyone else's marriage, obviously, the most likely explanation uh, for him and for, you might remember, New York politician Elliot Spitzer, whose wife was also uh, a, a, an elegant and lovely-looking woman, uh, and also spent a, a great deal of time in the company of prostitutes. Reason? Because no man feels contempt from a prostitute. He's paying her. He feels uh, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate exchange, and um, it's a comfortable feeling for men compared, even if their wives at home are much prettier and much lovelier, but if the marriage has reached a point where familiarity has bred contempt, uh, for that man, a, uh, a, an intimate encounter with his wife is not nearly as satisfying, it may even be un unpleasant and unacceptable. Whereas with a prostitute, uh, it is understandable and it makes a lot of sense. And so I spoke in last week's show about the techniques from ancient Jewish wisdom for avoiding what appears to be an almost inevitability. I mean, you, you live together with another person for, you know, one year, two years, five years, ten years, fifteen, what about twenty years? My goodness! Surely familiarity has to have bred its full complement of contempt by then? And uh, the answer is that if you do not safeguard the marriage, if you don't handle the marriage correctly and if you make mistakes then yes it will it will deteriorate and become a marriage where contempt rules and that is a marriage which is very difficult to keep together so all of that i uh, recorded and um, uh, did whilst i was in rome uh, susan and i were in rome for a couple of days few days um, we attended a beautiful beautiful family wedding and um, we um, came back. Now, Rome 
I, I'm sure many of you know the city very well, and I'm not going to suggest that in literally just a few days, uh, Susan and I knew or discovered anything about the city. Um, we did get around a little bit. We, you know, we're not, um, we just don't like rushing out in the morning and doing tourist site after tourist site and standing in line with a tour guide. We just don't do that. And so uh, we didn't even visit the Vatican um, while we were in Rome, partially because I am sorry to say I don't think much of the current uh, occupant uh, of the Vatican. Um, I, j I just I think he's a very foolish man. I understand that he is um, the by by almost by definition uh, he is uh, he is the Holy Father and is an important man. I get all that, but um, but compared to his predecessor. Pope Benedict, who I, I viewed as, as a great, great man. Um, and no, for those of you who who not in the picture, he was not a Nazi. Please stop that nonsense. Uh, neither was Pope Pius XII, by the way. Uh, another story. Uh, but there's an enormous amount of uh, villainizing of the Catholic Church by the secular uh, powers in the culture today, both in Europe and America, and uh, it's not true, and uh, it's it's wrong, and it's destructive. But at any rate, uh, no, we didn't we didn't even visit the Vatican. We confined our uh, visits to very very few things. Um, and I'll tell you uh, what we visited, and then I'll tell you why I'm telling you about it. Uh, first of all, we we visited the port uh, of Rome. Now, for people who built water viaducts as the Romans did, and were obviously extraordinarily skilled. I mean, this, this really is remarkable. Their water engineering is amazing. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the puzzle to me, and if any of you know the answer to this, uh, do go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, let me know about it. Would you do that? Because I simply don't understand why people who, who were so good at, at hydraulic engineering, why did they not make the River Tiber navigable? All it needed, and it's not a huge river, all it needed was a, a couple of dams, and, you know, lock technology was understood early on. And so what uh, dams and locks do is they convert even a turbulent river into a series of tranquil ponds, if you like. That's how canals work. And... Uh, this was done very early uh, in Europe on, on a number of rivers, including some very large and turbulent rivers like the River Rhine. It was done in France, but never on the River Tiber. So the, uh, the Tiber never served for navigation, so ships didn't come all the way up to Rome. They stopped in Ostia, and now there's a, a, a quite a large dig. Uh, it's not as big as Pompeii and not nearly as popular and as well visited, but Susan and I went there. It's at the mouth of the Tiber River, and it's called Ostia Antica, and uh, it is the it used to be the business center of Rome. You know, it's about 10 miles out of Rome, and it's the place where all the goods that were coming to Rome, all the goods that were leaving Rome, travelers, everything came through there. So it was quite a bustling business center, this Ostia Antica, and... Uh, for us, another point of interest was that it contains the ruins of the oldest synagogue outside Israel. 
Uh, this is a synagogue that uh, goes back to um, uh, the BC years or the, and the early AD years. I mean, really, really a long time ago. And this was even this synagogue was in place even before uh, the Romans sacked Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. So uh, we wanted to see that. And then the only other things we saw were the Colosseum, and we, we just took ourselves around that. And then we saw the Arch of Titus, and we went to see that because the uh, engravings done, and again, I mean, it's done nearly 2,000 years ago, show Titus bringing back slaves from Jerusalem along with some of the gold articles of the temple, including the candelabrum, the menorah, and you see it quite clearly. So we wanted to see that. So that's what we saw. We saw the Colosseum, the Arch of Titus. And then um, another highlight for us was we sought out the little church in which you can see Michelangelo's Moses. Now, this is the Moses that has horns. He has two little horns on his head. And um, uh, why do I tell you all of this? Well, I'm leading up to it because... Uh, we are, uh, at least what I want to talk about today, is uh, the decline of things in America. And the fact is that from extraordinary heights, uh, it, it's hard to believe how quickly the Roman Empire vanished. Absolutely difficult to understand. But uh, it is understandable once you know the secrets of how societies decay. So all of that um, and more coming up in today's show. Uh, take a look at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, before we return, would you? And um, at rabbidaniellappin.com, take a look at the resource that is on sale for listeners to this show right now. It's called Boost Your Income. You can download it right away, and uh, it's a... Uh, an audio program of three spiritual strategies for financial success. Uh, as you know, this is a topic that concerns me greatly, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just so disturbed at all the wrong thinking out there about money, which, which results in people not having enough of it, all of which is, is utterly unnecessary. It's called Boost Your Income on Sale at RabbiDanielLappin.com. Also, uh, I'd love for you to make sure that uh, you are on the Thought Tools mailing list and the Susan's Musings mailing list and the Ask the Rabbi mailing list. Go to RabbiDanielLappin.com and, and check those out. And the reason I say that is because uh, I don't want us to ever fall out of touch. And if, if you want to find me, um, if you want to know, you know where videos are available, where books are available, if you want to find out uh, different places you can hear this show, all of that at RabbiDanielLappin.com. So uh, definitely go ahead and make sure that not only do you look up Boost Your Income, but that you also make sure you're on that mailing list. Okay, quick break here, and uh, let me continue. Uh, this is not a Roman holiday. Uh, great movie, by the way. An old black and white movie, Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, if you're looking for a, a movie, just a nice movie to share with your family. Um, and children as well, by the way. 
that is a nice movie because it stresses at the end of the movie the stress is on head over heart in spite of the fact that she fell in love Audrey Hepburn fell in love with Gregory Peck and it was a glorious love the likes of which she was unlikely to ever see again she she still knew she had to follow her head not her heart and that's a lesson that uh, certainly parents of daughters as well as sons uh, would want them to get so it's called Roman Holiday but this is not my travel log this is not a travel guide to Rome this is me your rabbi revealing how the world really works we'll be right back you're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network find more at theblaze.com slash radio don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. You hear that one? Yes. Did you hear what it was? Controlling the narrative. What boys. haven't we seen? Well, we've only seen boys. We have only seen young migrant boys in those shelters. Yes. What is that over her shoulder? Uh, I don't know. Is that a picture of a little girl over her right shoulder? Do not tell is me. Is a picture I think is a little girl on the border. The morning blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lapin returns with more of How the World Really Works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. We're back. And uh, here on the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show, where I, as usual, reveal how the world really works. I'll tell you just one more thing that we saw in Rome, it was all relevant to this. And that, by the way, covers everything we saw. We also went to see the Trevi Fountain. Um, it's impressive. It stands about 80 feet. I think it stands about 80 feet high. I'm, if I'm wrong on that, then I'm not wrong by a whole lot. But it's huge. Anyway, why, why am I interested in it? Because it's built in the 16th century. Now, in the 16th century, there was no electricity. And uh, by the way, something that's interesting, and you might try this with with your children, or uh, if you know if you know some even teenagers, children in there, you know, from seven, eight, nine years old, all the way up into the teen years, you might ask them, when do they think that electricity uh, first became available? In other words, uh, when did it become possible? to plug something into a socket in your house or when did it become possible to turn on, uh, to flick on a switch and have light and then give them a range of choices. You know, was it uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 400 years ago? And um, in spite of the fact that your your, your children or, or friends or whoever they are, uh, are, it's, it's really quite fascinating uh, to see how little understanding our children have today of sort of timelines of of how life has uh, developed and evolved. Anyways, um, the the answer, of course, is about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago. It was in the early 1900s that street lighting and uh, electricity in houses and factories and so on began to to become uh, more common. So it's, it's, you know, in in in, in the sweep of human history, I mean, it's just... It's a, it's a speck. It's, it's just yesterday. It's, it's really rather remarkable. But 
anyways, here's what interested me about the, the Trevi Fountain in Rome, which, by the way, I mean, it really is beautiful. I, I looked at it, you know, and I thought to myself, let alone executing it, all right, fine, I cannot carve stone, all right? I, I wouldn't even begin to know how to do it. And all I can do is, is gape in astonishment when they tell about how um, Michelangelo carved his David in Florence and the Moses that I saw in, in Rome. And uh, he couldn't understand the mystery. You know, he'd say to people, well, it's, it's, it was there in the block of marble. All I had to do was take away everything around it. <laughs> no, all right, I, I can't do anything like that. But I couldn't even have conceived of the pattern and the, the um, structure and, and even the harmony between the elements of the, the Trevi Fountain. And, you know, I, I looked at it. I never thought this would happen to me. And I, I've never seen it before. And I really thought it would be a bit ho-hum for me. I just, I just wasn't that into it. But when I actually saw it, I, uh, I, I sat there for half an hour uh, together with Susan looking at it um, because I realized it was totally beyond my comprehension. I couldn't even have dreamed, I couldn't have even sketched out on paper what the thing might look like. It is, it is so well done, and the elements come together so magnificently, and it is so satisfying to the eye um, to gaze upon it <clears throat> that uh, it, was, it was really a humbling experience for me. It was, uh, it just, it, was, it was something worth doing for me. Anyways... What interested me, in addition to the beautiful structure of the Trevi Fountain, <coughs> was that um, in the 16th century, when it was built, there's no electricity, right? Electricity doesn't show up until the beginning of the 20th century. And so how does the water get circulated from the big pool into which people throw, by the way, a total of about a million dollars a year? Yeah, you, you're supposed to throw a coin over your shoulder into the Trevi Fountain for some something to happen. No, your rabbi and his wife failed to do that. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have. But um, there it was, uh, quite, quite beautiful. Um, but how does the water get back up to the, uh, the lion's mouths and the, the waves and everything else where the water comes pouring down? How does that happen? Today, there would just be an electric pump circulating the water. And where did the water come from? Any? Well, needless to say, uh, you probably guessed the answer quicker than I did. I, I'm still thinking in terms of how did they circulate the water. My fevered imagination even extended to um, slaves, <laughs> slaves operating a sort of squirrel wheel. Because, you know, they, they built that way. They built cranes. Uh, operated by um, slaves trudging around in huge wheels, inside the wheels. And so I envisage the same thing. You know, maybe, maybe there's slaves turning cranks or somehow, you know, running buckets. <laughs> not at all. Uh, water shortage was not an issue uh, to the Romans of the 16th century. And by the way, neither is it to this day. There is absolutely no... Um, suggestion of conservation of water, preservation of water in Rome. It just doesn't exist. 
anyway, what did they do? They, uh, they had an aqueduct from a fountain about 15 miles away. They ran a, a water supply to feed the fountain. And then after the water uh, poured down into the fountain, it flowed away to, into the Tiber River and out to the ocean. It, it had done its job. Extraordinary. And, uh, and so it is with, <clears throat> with so much else. Even in this old town that we saw, uh, the the um, Osti uh, Antica, this this old port city of Rome, um, we're talking about it. You know, it was at its peak in the in the year two hundred, three hundred thereabouts, and before. And um, as early as that, it's it's got a bunch of public toilets, like waterborne sewage. I mean, not porcelain and. Although there might have been marble there origi- originally, it's possible. I don't know. But uh, uh, they've got heated air. They've got bathhouses with heated water, and the Rome the Romans were big on this. So two thousand years ago, they're already realizing that cleanliness is an essential part of civilization, and they are administering a huge territory of thousand miles, right? The, the Roman Empire extends all the way uh, to where the United Kingdom is now, right? England, not Scotland, but England was under the, the Roman Empire. In fact, the Emperor Hadrian built a wall across England called Hadrian's Wall. You can see lots of it to this very day um, in order to stop the wild Scots people from coming down and interfering with the Roman Empire. And it covered Rome, uh, France, and uh, and Italy, and and Switzerland, all these places, North Africa, all the way east, Constantinople, now Istanbul. Isn't it remarkable? In just the administering, right? No telegraph, no telephone, no radio, and uh, and so they are reduced to conveying information backwards and forwards from the outer reaches of the empire uh, just by people on horses and people coming and going on ships. That's, that's how it was done. And the empire thrived. Now, something very important to understand, I've spoken about this before, is that uh, you have to have a growing population in order for a civilization to, to live. This stems from a very simple basic reality, which is that if a man and a woman have only one child <coughs> and there are no other resources, they will have a very thin old age because one person, one child, cannot look after himself and his family and also his parents. And so what does it take? Well, it takes at least three people, at least three, in order to sustain two. Now, extend that, and, you know, every now and then I have people saying to me, oh, none of that applies today anymore. We're not an agricultural society. We're an industrial society, and I don't have any children, and it's fine because I have investments and uh, K-1s and all kinds of retirement plans. I've got nothing to worry about. And I say, well, you know, on one level, there's something parasitical about your position because you are counting on being supported by my children. What are you talking about? I'm, I don't need anything from anybody. I've got my investments. Okay, fine. Yeah, I understand. But your investments are rooted 
in companies that produce goods or services, right? That's that's all that your investments are. I mean, that's what they include, right? Um, no matter what you invest in, even if you invest in mutual funds, but underlying it all, at the bottom of it all, uh, it is companies that make shoes or jet engines or clothing or they provide services, whatever it is. I mean, that's – and for those companies to thrive – they need ever larger markets. Now, it's pretty straightforward. So, yes, you do need my children and uh, and everyone else's children. So even though you decide that you're not going to have children, you are, at the end of the day, going to be living because other people did raise children. So that's why there is a, <clears throat> there is a moral question about the decision not to have children. I need to say, you know, there are obviously there are, are people who can't have children or for various reasons don't have children. I understand. But in general, as far as the morality is concerned, uh, one not bad definition of morality is something is immoral. If everybody did it and it would result in the collapse of society, then that activity is immoral. Is uh, littering immoral? Sure it is, because although one chocolate wrapper can uh, can go by, if everybody did it all the time, it would be uh, the collapse of society. Is homosexuality immoral? Yeah, because if everybody did it, then uh, the result would be the collapse of society. Is not having children at all immoral? Yeah, it is. You know, given that if you had if you have the choice. Uh, yes, deciding not to have children is an immoral choice. That's one of the reasons that the decider of Judeo-Christian morality, namely the Bible, has the instruction of uh, or God's divine directive of um, having children fairly early in the book. Right? That's that's the idea. That's exactly what we're talking about. So, for a society to function and flourish, it does have to have a growing population. But it's also got to have the right kind of population. It's got to have a population of makers, not takers, givers, not getters. In other words, uh, for a society to flourish, it must have a growing population of um, creative, productive, uh, good citizens. I mean, it's really what it's got to be. I mention this because um, it's been a number of years already that uh, some of the Western European countries, Italy, is one of them, um, Sweden, all the Norwegian countries, um, Germany have been suffering from very low fertility levels. So uh, again, um, to say for a couple to have two children in their lifetime is not sustainable. That's not um, uh, enough. It isn't. But when that figure falls to an average of 1.7, 1.6, as we find in Europe, you now got a serious problem, and everybody understands that. And uh, even in the United States, where Social Security has been a ripple for many years, when it was begun, uh, the idea was that a part of your pay would be put away into trust and it would be invested so that uh, you would absolutely for sure have something at the end of the road. Um, Obviously, it's been many years that that has been stolen and just used as general revenue by the government, and uh, 
And so the only way to pay Social Security debt now is not with the accumulated earnings of the money that was taken from you, but uh, simply by taking money from the next generation and paying the previous generation. And so everybody understands that uh, with a diminishing population, that becomes one of the, uh, the, the penalties. It's simply not going to be sustainable to continue paying Social Security. So what did Europe do? Uh, they thought they were very smart by bringing in immigrants. That was part of their calculation. Oh, we solve the problem. Yes, it's true. Our native population is not reproducing, but uh, that's fine because we'll bring in all kinds of single men from the MENA countries, Middle East, North Africa, and everything will be fine. Well, I don't have to spend time discussing just how fine that's all worked out to be. But uh, how did the Roman Empire manage? I mean, after all, were they having children all the time? Were they sustaining themselves? Well, not really, but it didn't matter for them. Why not? Let me tell you, coming right back. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, uh, visit over there, would you? And... Uh, and uh, make sure that we have an op a way of staying in touch with one another. Uh, you can be on the mailing list. You can also take a look at Boost Your Income. You can download that right away for a sale price and uh, acquire that one-hour teaching of the three spiritual strategies for financial success. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come. From Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return to Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, everybody. And uh, thank you, as always, for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for promoting it. And, um, and, and here's another thing to, uh, to just bear in mind, and that is that um, through the mailing list which you can put yourself on by visiting rabbidaniellappin.com and also through Facebook, Rabbi Daniel Lappin and Twitter at Daniel Lappin uh, you um, will be able to find out the next time I do a conference call we did one a couple of weeks ago, and then I played the, uh, the entire sh conference call for one of the shows. That uh, did not appear to be a very popular move. I won't do that again, but I, I will definitely play uh, segments of it, including the most interesting questions that come my way. And so uh, sometime in the next week or two, I plan on doing another conference call and... Uh, I will announce it through the, the website. I will also announce it on Facebook and Twitter exactly when it is. Again, it's going to be uh, one evening coming up. It'll, I, I tend to, to do it at uh, um, 6 p.m. 6 Pacific time, 7 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern time. So it's sort of a, it's not, not great, but it's, it's okay for people who want to participate. It's usually a one-hour uh, conversation, a one-hour opportunity for you to raise questions and, uh, 
and for me to do my best to provide satisfactory answers. So at any rate, um, make sure that you're on the mailing list so I can let you know when it is that we'll be doing that again. So uh, RabbiDanielLappin.com or at Facebook, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, or at Twitter, at Daniel Lappin. Alrighty, so um, um, the, uh, we close the, the last segment with a question of how did the Roman Empire manage then if, uh, if they were not growing population? Well, you see, they were because they were using conquering. They were building an empire. And so if, uh, if your available workers in your society and your available customers was growing not through natural means by little children being born and growing up into adults, but because you were uh, acquiring huge slices of territory from different parts of the world along with their populations were suddenly brought under the umbrella of the Roman Empire and um, in many, many goods, as they did with Jerusalem, they did with many other countries where they carried off much of the wealth um, to back to Rome. And so if you've ever wondered why it is that the Romans appeared to have the leisure to carve incredible statuary and to put wonderful buildings up in, 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 in a very early stage of human history, uh, I mean, the Colosseum is impressive. There's no question about it. Well, one of the reasons is that the population was growing dramatically. And a growing population, as long as it is a coherent population, meaning it is a population that is unified by a basic theme. Now, this is very, very important. And uh, I know it's, it's something that people aren't going to like very much, but... Um, in 1925, uh, President Calvin Coolidge laid the cornerstone for the very first Jewish <coughs> community center in uh, Washington, D.C. And he gave a wonderful speech uh, on that occasion. And I'm, I'm going to just read you little bits of the speech. He's talking about the fact that uh, it didn't have to be 13. There might have been 14, 15, 16 original colonies. It sort of depended what was going on with France and Spain and everybody else. But um, he says um, their chief commercial interests were not among themselves but with the mother country across the Atlantic. New England was predominantly Puritan. The southern colonies were basically Cavalier. New York was in the main Dutch. Pennsylvania had been founded by the Quakers. New Jersey needed to go back but a short distance to find its beginnings in a migration from Sweden. He says there were well nigh as many divergencies of religious faith as they were of origin, politics, and geography. Yet in the end, these religious differences proved rather unimportant. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, he says from its beginnings, a new continent had seemed destined to be the home of religious tolerance. Beyond that, and this was one of the factors which I think weighed heaviest on the side of unity, the Bible was the one work of literature that was common to all of them. The scriptures were read and studied everywhere. There are many testimonies that their teachings became the most important intellectual and spiritual force for unification. Um, he then quotes, as I often do, the Irish historian William Leckie, who says that the uh, foundation stones of American democracy were cemented with Hebraic mortar. And he says... All the way from New Hampshire to Georgia, they found a common ground of faith and reliance in scriptural writings. 
In those days, books were few, and even those of a secular character were largely the product of a scholarship which used the scriptures as the model and standard of social interpretation. It was to this, of course, that Lecky referred. I'm still, I'm, I'm reading Calvin Coolidge's speech. Um, <clears throat> it suggests in a way which none of us can fail to understand the debt which the young American nation owed to the sacred writing that the Hebrew people gave to the world. The biblical influence was strikingly impressive in all the New England colonies, and only less so in the others. In the Connecticut Code of 1650, the Mosaic model is adopted. Magistrates were authorized to administer justice according to the laws here established, and for want of them, according to the Word of God. In the New Haven Code of 1655, there were 79 topical statutes for the government, half of which contained references to the Old Testament. The founders of the New Haven colony, John Davenport and Theophilus Eaton, were expert Hebrew scholars. The extent to which they leaned upon the moral and administrative system laid down by the Hebrew lawgivers was responsible for their conviction that the Hebrew language and literature ought to be made as familiar as possible to all the people. So it was that John Davenport arranged that in the first public school in New Haven, the Hebrew language was to be taught, and so on and so forth. Um, You get the idea. It's pretty amazing stuff. What we're we're realizing and seeing is that, yes, um, when you have a nation with a unified common worldview, it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. But when we agreed on the Bible, the greatness of the United States of America reached fruition. And as I think you all know uh, my position on this, uh, from about 1962, the role of Scripture was largely obliterated from public life in America, demonized, vilified, and expunged, and um, it represents a period of decline in America. Uh, In the same way, to bring in uh, one and a half million um, Muslims from North Africa and the Middle East into Germany and to assume that these people are interchangeable with the folks who show up early for their shifts at BMW and Mercedes so that they can oil their machines before their shift begins. Yes, that's typical among German factory workers, and to assume that this uh, huge influx of Muslim men are interchangeable with the German citizens hard at work on the assembly lines at BMW, that was a horrible error, a horrible error. There is no unified theme. Germany, you know, Germany dominated European politics for the 20th century. You know why? It's really very simple. Huge population, right, 80 million people. And all unified, all basically sharing a common worldview. You cannot overestimate the power and the significance of a shared culture. In the same way, you can hardly overestimate the destructiveness of multiculturalism. What you're doing is you're shattering what makes it possible for that population to be unified and to be as one. It's it's pretty clear, I think, as to uh, what we're dealing with. So the Romans had it, and um, they even had it before Christianity arrived. As a matter of fact, uh, it's not altogether clear that the arrival of Christianity helped um, 
did the Roman Empire hang together for a little longer because Christianity had arrived, um, or was its decline accelerated? Okay, that's a, a too big a conversation for the present time, but, but these are, 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 are important questions. At any rate, what uh, we're looking at is at a culture that in spite of this incredible ability to administer and build and and it's extraordinary but uh, in spite of that in a frighteningly short period of time it declined Uh, the people of the roman empire began to suffer and things went from bad to worse and finally it collapsed and the glorious lives they built for themselves in in some cases by the way uh, it went from glory to horror in a lifetime. You know, it, it, it didn't take a long time for this incredible structure of the Roman Empire to erode and fade away. Gone. Finished. And now all that's left are ruins. So it raises the obvious question, which is, are things in America never better or are they in decline? Now, you can uh, listen to... Uh, the uh, many of the media voices you can read the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post, and uh, you can read uh, the Atlantic and New York Magazine and all kinds of other magazines and journals and papers, and you'll get the impression they'll tell you we're living in the best of times. Things have never been better. More people are literate today than in ever before. Violent crime is down to its lowest levels. The levels of income are as high as they've ever been. The, uh, the annual earnings of people are higher than they've ever been. Uh, the inequality is lower than it's ever been, right? The, the gap between rich and poor, regardless of whether or not that actually is a useful indicator. I'm just telling you what people say. Uh, health. More people have access to health than ever before. Uh, more children are attending school through high school than ever before. Um, it's Things are fantastic. Uh, there's never been such a lengthy period without a major war being fought. Um, health is so good. So many diseases have been conquered and defeated and banished. Things have hardly been better ever. Things haven't been better. This is the peak of human civilization and uh, don't pay any attention to the naysayers don't pay any attention to the gloomy pessimists who just see trouble wherever they turn it's a sunshiny day i mean just take a look outside you're talking about a time when plumbers go on vacations to europe i mean when did human beings ever live like that when did human beings ever live that ordinary folks who work with their hands for a living own not one but two cars, own their own homes, their homes are air-conditioned in summer and, uh, in, and, and heated in winter, and they go on wonderful vacations? Look at us. Things stop complaining. Things are amazing. Everything is wonderful. And... Uh, and I point a finger at me and I say, Lappin, what's the matter with you? You're talking about decline and you keep talking about what happened in the early 1960s and, oh, 
and you you speak about this thing and that thing and each one is another milestone on the road downwards how can you be talking like that you're simply not paying attention to just how good things are there are more countries in the world today that are democratic than have ever been before that's a good sign and i am sure that like me you also have heard these kinds of conversations and these these uh, these arguments and so uh, when we return we're going to take a look at uh, whether that in fact is so and uh, whether in fact the decline that is real in the united states of america is reversible and um, i'll explain yes it is and tell you why all of that coming up the website rabbidaniellappin.com look one of the reasons that i want to be uh, have in, have contact with you is that um you know in, in the uncertainties of the world in which we live uh, for instance um uh, when i uh, when i moved from terrestrial radio to podcasting uh, those people who were on my mailing list knew about it those who didn't didn't uh, those people who knew our website were able to find out and and follow up anyway so it is uh, in these uncertain times make sure that you are subscribed to uh, one of our mailing lists you can subscribe either to thought tools every week or um, uh, susan's musings or my favorite is ask the rabbi uh, all of that by the way you can go back and read older um, episodes of all of those newsletters back at the website rabbi daniel and uh, as i said earlier in the segment uh, i'm going to be doing another telephone conference for listeners people who want to be on the phone with me for an hour and uh, ask questions and have a discussion all of that yes i'll be letting you know the date of that through uh, the mailing list as well so go to rabbidaniellappin.com and make sure that you're on there also uh, you might check the facebook rabbi daniel lappin and twitter at daniel lappin uh, periodically I will also announce those things over there. So uh, thanks for being part of the show. And quick break. Be back for the closing segment of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. On the Blaze Radio Network, Pat Gray. They don't want the job. Yes. It's beneath them. Yeah. They don't want it. Uh, they don't want to yeah. come out and just work at, at a bottom-rung business. Right. They want to start where their parents are. So weird. <laughs> Well, we, we've done this to him, you know, with the participation trophy and dumbing down curriculum and making sure that they understand they're special, no matter whether they're special or not. They're just special. Pat Gray, weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi revealing how the world really works. That's right. <clears throat> and um, and what is the uh, date August 2007 mean to you? Well, yes, that was the day on which the uh, Interstate 35 bridge in Minneapolis collapsed and fell into the river. That's right. And um, that's right. Well, uh, is, is the bridge an isolated instance? No. Uh, there's just over half a million bridges, traffic-bearing bridges in the United States of America. Gives you an idea of what a big country it is, doesn't it? Huh? 
uh, over 500,000, closer to 600,000 traffic-bearing bridges in America, and 10% uh, of them are in uh, urgent need of repair. That doesn't mean they're about to fall, it doesn't mean they're dangerous, but it does mean they can no longer be neglected. Now, 10% means that that's over 50,000, 50, right? <laughs> Five zero. 50,000 bridges need work in the United States of America. How's about the roads where you live? Now, if you live in the Northeast, in areas that have been democratic for many, many years, uh, the maintenance of roads is appalling. If you live in Chicago or Los Angeles or uh, uh, Detroit, cities, again, that have been mismanaged by democratic politics for many, many years, uh, the roads are in appalling condition. Now, the, the general rule on this, it's, it's sad and it's tragic, but um, it takes goodness and character strength. It takes, it takes vision. Uh, in order to do maintenance because it's not nearly as much fun putting another coat of paint on your house and mowing the lawn as it is going shopping for a new stereo or a new car or something else. And so, not surprisingly, and in low-class neighborhoods, what do I mean when I say low-class neighborhoods? I've, I've defined this before, most recently on Twitter, actually, my Twitter feed at, at Daniel Lappin, I've explained in the past that um, low class and upper class have nothing to do with how much money you have. That's true. They don't. Uh, those definitions are not correct. I'll explain why people are confused about that. Uh, they have nothing to do with the color of your skin. They have nothing to do with your uh, gender or your religion. No. Uh, low class people are people who live for today. High class people are people who live with their eyes very much on yesterday and tomorrow. So, not surprisingly, low-class people squander money and never, ever have any. High-class people produce and create money, even if it takes a generation. Sometimes high-class people move to the United States from other countries, and they work very, very hard, and they make sure their children get good education, and the children do very, very well indeed. That's not uncommon. Uh, then you've got other people who've, who've always lived in America or lived here for hundreds of years, and they are low class, and um, they think only of today. Well, if you drive through low class neighborhoods, you will see non-maintained houses, non-maintained yards, non-maintained cars, non-maintained gardens, uh, because maintenance isn't fun. And if you're living for today, you buy new stuff as much as you can. You don't look after your existing stuff. That's, again, it's a character uh, feature. It's, uh, it's, it's part of the value system you live by. And uh, cities are conglomerations of individuals. So not surprisingly, cities where there are uh, no values, where the majority of people are low-class people, those cities do not do road maintenance. They don't do uh, um, infrastructure maintenance. Uh, water pipes, gas pipes, electricity, all of these things are in bad shape in those places. The Northeast is particularly bad, but, um, but uh, Illinois is, is awful. Parts of Michigan are problematic. Um, parts of California today are, 
are in serious, serious conditions. So, uh, yeah, these are things that are all going downhill. These are things deteriorating seriously. But these aren't the only things that are deteriorating. What is also deteriorating is growing unhappiness with our leadership. Uh, we, We begin more and more and have been feeling over decades already that uh, our leaders are working in their own interests, not that of the public. And uh, we, do, we, do we still trust the FBI? I don't think so. Do we trust the Internal Revenue Service? I don't think so. We experience a very disquieting feeling that the common good is breaking down. Um, we feel that the distribution of rewards is unfair. A few people at the top gain disproportionately, and many people stay where they are or they go downhill. There's a feeling that the country we know has been taken away from us. And this is one of the reasons, obviously, that so many of us responded very well when Donald Trump came along. Um, The undermining of traditional values, well, that's been going on for 50 years, um, large-scale immigration. What's the problem there? It's not that we don't like people. It's that these people have given no indication that there's a desire to integrate. Uh, they come in as takers, not as givers. And these are enormously disturbing things. Um, so we, these are things we're all feeling. So is it possible to point to all the good things happening? Sure, absolutely, you can point to all the good things going on. The fact is that everyone has a computer today, which vastly exceeds the power of computers that even governments used to have 40 years ago. Uh, People are able to afford nice clothing. People are better dressed. All of these things are absolutely true. We can point at many wonderful things. But so who's to say that I am right in being enormously concerned about the future and not them. Maybe the folks who are saying everything is just getting better and better. Maybe they're the ones that are right. And uh, the, the answer is, once again, a, a question of looking at the difference between past and future on the one hand and present on the other. Right? If, you, if you live for the present, then indeed you take a look around you and say, wow, this is great. Look how wonderful everything is. Nothing to complain about. But that means you're not comparing it to the past. If you compared it to the past, you'd say, wait a moment. You know, by ni- in, at 1960, did you know that women could walk safely anywhere in the city or in the parks of anywhere in the United States of America at any time of the day or night? Yeah, that's true. Did you know that an enviable middle-class lifestyle could be enjoyed by a family on the earnings of not two people, one person. That's right. Did you know that the most popular word in uh, pop music was baby in 1960? That's right. You probably do not want to know what the most common words are in pop music today. The music today that your children can listen through those earbuds perpetually grafted onto their ears, that music, those lyrics, 
would have brought a blush to the face of a convict in a federal penitentiary back in 1960. So if you take a look just at today, oh, it's great, kids have smartphones. But if you also look at yesterday, you say, well, wait a second. There's a deterioration in quality. Children could communicate. Children read more. They could write. None of that is possible today. Children write in misspelled SMS text messages. These are problems. Uh, the condition of marriage and the family. Another thing, right? You, you look, everything's wonderful, but wait a moment. Keep an eye on yesterday and look at what's happened to the number of children born to unmarried mothers. This is a huge and reliable indicator of poverty. This is a problem. This is not good. You know, I often um, speak of the writing of Rudyard Kipling, great English uh, author and poet. And I do that because I don't want him to be forgotten. And right now, he is vilified by the left because he was part of people who saw the value of the British Empire and so on. And so. So he's a bad guy, a dead white male. But um, let your children read the Jungle Books by Rudyard Kipling. And one of the stories I've told you about in the past is about the mongoose, Ricky Tiki Tavi, who saves a family from the cobras, the venomous and malevolent cobras living in their garden in India. And uh, um, at one point, uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi, the mongoose, realizes he has to go and destroy all the cobra eggs. And the, uh, there's a foolish bird that's in the story. I mean, the, these beautiful stories, they really come to life. And this, this bird, because his own or her own babies come out of eggs, she has a natural sympathy with the cobras who, whose children come from eggs. And Ricky Tikitavi says, you've got to understand that uh, it is the egg today that becomes the cobra tomorrow. And so the only <clears throat> moral and good thing to do is to go and wipe out those cobra eggs now. Well, this, this, there's some value in understanding that the idea of wisdom is not to look at today. The idea of wisdom is to look at the eggs of today and to know what's going to hatch tomorrow. That's exactly how ancient Jewish wisdom puts it, by the way. Uh, you've got to be able to realize what's going to hatch out of today's eggs tomorrow. And um, <clears throat> when, we, when we look at the likely outcome of the things we see today, the, 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 the way that bureaucrats run America, the way that more and more people simply don't care. Do you know how many videos there you can find of postal workers who've been caught dumping the mail instead of delivering it? Right? It's a, it's a hot summer's afternoon. The guy's still got three hours of his mail round to do. So what he does is he tosses it in the forest or into the sewer or into a ditch and then takes the rest of the day off. Okay, that's... Um, the, there are so many people that have been caught. How many people are actually doing it? How much mail is getting dumped? Well, uh, the, the more the population and the worker force is made up of people who never heard the words thou shalt not, who never heard of the Bible other than as an object of derision and uh, humor, uh, the more that workers 
are trained with the idea that all they have to have is skills, that values don't matter at all, well, you're going to get a situation where the post office can no longer work, just doesn't work anymore. And I don't know if we're far off from that point. How's, how's about um, aircraft maintenance? What happens when lackadaisical and indifferent workers move up from baggage handling to aircraft maintenance? Um, what does uh, Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 suggest to you? Look, let me explain something. We all know that a fan blade uh, broke off the jet engine, bust through the housing, um, caused the engine to disintegrate, the window shattered, dragging that poor woman out to her death, halfway out to her death. Uh, we all understand that. But wait a second. We've had jet engines for 60 years. We know metallurgy. And the reason that jet transport has been so reliable is that we don't wait until fan blades break. Long before that, we replace them. There is a rigorous and brilliantly constructed maintenance system for aircraft safety. But at its best, it depends on people of uh, integrity to operate it in the same way that the postal system, at the no matter how much technology you have, still needs people of integrity to operate it. And so what happens? As you are going to find out, this Southwest Airlines incident, just like another one in 2015, will turn out to be botched maintenance. Somebody signed off on something that hadn't been done. Why? Maybe it was a nice afternoon and he wanted to get off. Who knows? But when you take values out of the system, it all collapses. And values is not only what keeps engine maintenance and postal workers working, it's also what uh, retains coherence and unity within a society and a culture. And that's what destroyed Rome. In the final analysis, they lost whatever it was that was holding them together and huge and uncontrolled immigration of people who didn't share any of those values. And the Roman Empire vanished incredibly quickly. I don't think that America is on the same path, and the reason I don't think so is because America is based on the Bible. Yeah, I know a lot of people get really mad when I say that, not, not so much among the listenership here, but um, people who are determined to um, persuade themselves that Christianity had nothing to do with the founding of America and that Scripture had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, my quotes from from uh, President Calvin Coolidge, 1925, will tell you quite differently. At any rate, uh, the, the, the future of America, I think it's in the balance. I do think that we got a reprieve on um, November the 8th, 2016. Um, I, I really do think that President Trump is somehow just sort of doing mostly the right things overwhelmingly particularly when contrasted with what Hillary would have done and what Barack Obama did do, and frankly what George W. Bush did, for, particularly for his last, uh, his last term. Um, this is very reassuring. And um, if America were to recover its biblical heritage, and it's not going to be everybody, but if enough people in America were restored to the conviction 
in the root values that created this country and sustained us, I think we can come back. And that's one of the reasons that I put so much energy into the organization called the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, because I do believe that it's through Jews and Christians working together to reinstate the centrality of the Bible as a system of values. That is the hope we have for restoration and a hope for the future. So I'm actually, I am optimistic, but that since 1960, contrary to the New York Times and the Washington Post, contrary to the views of the Atlantic and the New Yorker, America has been in a decline. I don't think there's any doubt about it, in a very serious decline. Um, Yes, if you look at every kid with a cell phone and all looks so wonderful, and yeah, I understand that. But I also look at the future and the past as well, and I can see trends and directions. And I can see the cobras that are going to grow out of many of the eggs that are hatching now. So um, I I think all of that uh, means that it could go either way. But we, unlike Rome, we at least have a chance. We do have a hope of pulling it back altogether. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, make sure that you take a look at uh, uh, Boost Your Income. It's a one-hour audio program you can download at a special sale price for uh, the audience of this show. And uh, you can also take a look at uh, many, many other things at rabbidaniellappin.com, including uh, Ask the Rabbis and uh, Thought Tools and Susan's Musings. And um, you can also make sure you are on the mailing list. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. So thanks so much for being part of the show. Thank you for your help in promoting the show, telling folks about it. This is your rabbi, and uh, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.